as we turn together to the book of Philippians. Our text this morning is Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Let us now give attention to the reading of God's Word. This is the very Word of the true and living God. It is inerrant. It is authoritative. And it is sufficient. Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would add your blessing to the reading and preaching of your word. We ask, O Lord, that you would make it take root deeply in our hearts, that we might know you better, that we might serve you better, that we might praise you better. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Oftentimes it seems that there are seldom few occasions when the world, the news, and society pays attention to the church. This Lord's Day is one of those occasions. Resurrection Sunday, Easter. Another occasion would be around Christmas. There are points in time in which society looks at the church as kind of a curiosity. A dog with three legs. A zebra with no stripes. And perhaps if you're like me, you wonder how the church can possibly reach the world with the message of the gospel when the world just doesn't pay attention. What can the church do to change our society so that we can live lives of more abundance, so that we can have stronger families, so that we can have more caring and loving going on in our society? You might be tempted, perhaps, as some are, to think of elections to Congress or perhaps to laws that should be passed. The Apostle Paul shows us this morning what the solution is for the world. It's the church. It's a strong, built-up, united, caring church. And it is no coincidence that God's plan for our society is God's plan for His people. It is for His people to be known. It is for His gospel to be heard. And it is for the church to be salt, light, and leaven in our society. And so Paul tells us here in these opening verses as he gives thanks to this for this Philippian church to the Lord God himself. He gives us a bit of a blueprint of a plan of a foundation for what it means to be a true live loving church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what I would like us to see here this morning are three things. First, I would like us to see Paul's plan for gospel unity. 
A church is a place where there is gospel unity. The second thing I'd like us to see is that the church is a place where there is gospel priority. It's not just being united around the gospel, but having the priority of the gospel. And then the final thing we'll see is that the church is blessed and strengthened when she has gospel assurance. So gospel unity, gospel priority, and gospel assurance. So let us turn then to Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. Paul begins his letter, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. This may seem a little odd to you if you look back or think back to when you actually wrote a letter. Yes, there were paper and ink and stamps before email. And you would write, Dear Mom or Dear Bob. And you might have a way of beginning your letter that was almost formulaic. Paul does that to some extent here, but he changes the formula of the letter for his gospel purposes. So he begins a letter to Philippians by thanking God. Does that strike you? He doesn't say, you know, I thank you, church at Philippi, that you have it so together. I thank you that you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you for all of the work that you're doing in Macedonia. That's oftentimes where we as Americans want to begin. We want to begin with each other and with the people. But Paul doesn't begin there, and that's a lesson for us. Paul begins with God. He says, I thank my God for the work that is in you. It's a personal connection. This is not just the God, not just a God. This is Paul's God. It is the God of Paul and the God of the Philippians. And even in this act of thankfulness, Paul draws himself to the Philippians. He knows that it is God who is at work in the midst of the lives of the Philippians. And this focus on God puts Paul's prayer in perspective. He says, I thank you, or excuse me, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine. Prayer for Paul was an energizing event. Oftentimes, prayer can be something that if we don't take it seriously, if we don't take our commitment to it at, as a first priority, it's something that we do before we go to bed or when we first wake up in the morning. And it's a tired affair. We fight off the yawns in order to pray. Not so for Paul. For Paul, prayer was something that invigorated him. It reminded him of those that he loved and those that he served. You can almost imagine in your sanctified imagination as Paul is saying these words and saying these prayers, the images of faces are coming into his mind. Of Lydia, of that little slave girl, of the jailer, of the people he met in the synagogue, of the people who were in town and now had professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He was thinking on each of them. And so for Paul, this was not merely a listing of requests. Prayer for Paul was not an organ recital, praying for this person's stomach, this person's heart, and that person's lung. No, prayer for Paul was entering into the situation of others. It was entering into the lives of the Philippians. And so there's a great intensity of emotion. 
You may notice here in verse 4, Paul uses a specific Greek word, a word that means all or every, four times. He says, always, in every prayer, for you all, making my prayer, I thank you always. He is caught up in the emotion of prayer. Have you ever had that happen to you? Have you been caught up so deeply in prayer that you forgot about an appointment you had? Or that you actually missed a television show? Or that lunch was a half an hour late? Because you were caught up in thinking about those that you loved. That's what Paul is doing here in his thankfulness. It's a thankfulness that is rooted in his selflessness. And a selflessness that characterizes this congregation at Philippi. You see, Paul was constant in his prayers. When he says he prayed always, it doesn't mean that everywhere he went, he muttered under his breath a prayer. It meant that he was regular in his prayers. He didn't just have a quiet time that he got through in the morning. Paul was thinking about praying for these Philippian believers as he brushed his teeth, as he took a bath, as he walked to the synagogue, as he took a break from writing. He would perhaps have things in his life that would remind him of a certain person. He would perhaps see a, a young girl with blonde hair run by and he would think of someone in the Philippian congregation and pray for that family. He was selfless and constant in his prayer. His focus was on others rather than himself. The word here that is used for prayer in verse 4 is an interesting word. It is not the ordinary word for prayer. This is a word that carries out the connotation of a request or a petition. Its root is actually in the word for need, as in I need food, I need shelter, I need clothing. Well, if you need something, what do you do? You ask for it if you're a child, don't you? That happens to me all the time. My children come up to me and ask me for lunch, or they ask me if they can go out, or they ask me if I can provide something else. So this is true of the child of God. If you have a need for yourself or for another, you bring it before your heavenly Father. You bring this petition to God. But if we would bring petitions for others, we must know what they need. Isn't that true? If we would know what they need, we must know who they are. You don't pray for health for someone who's in good health. You don't pray for food for someone who has food but no drink. You pray for drink. You need to know who the people are that you are interceding for. And so when Paul makes this intercession, when Paul says, Oh Lord, please provide for this congregation, he has already come to know them, to enter into relationship with them, to be one with them. And so he can pray comprehensively as well. He says, in every prayer of mine, for you all. Now, we know, and we'll see later in this letter, that there could have been aspects in the Philippian congregation that would have caused Paul pain. We know there are at least two highly regarded ladies who are in the midst of a conflict. And that conflict could spill out into the broader congregation. So it is not that the Philippian congregation is perfect. It is not that they have arrived, but yet Paul prays for them in a comprehensive fashion. He is not selective 
in his prayers. That's what unity is about. That's what selflessness is about. We don't pray for just the things that we would like to see happen in the church. We don't pray just for stronger teachers because we like teaching. We pray for mercy ministry as well. We don't pray just for more people to provide service because we like godly service. We pray for teachers as well. We pray for fellowship as well. The temptation that we have because we live in a certain time, in a certain place, with certain circumstances, is to vet our prayers. You know what I mean? We have 15 minutes scheduled of quiet time, and we rank our prayers, and we make sure that the things that we really care about, that we are really concerned about, make it to the top of the list. But that's not what unity in the church is about. Sometimes it's about leaving off your own needs and praying for others who are hurting, entering into their situation, showing love for them in a tangible way. If this is our prayer life, it will lead to joyfulness. Because you see, Paul prays and he doesn't pray as someone who has to get through it with his eye on the watch. No, he says, making my prayer with joy. Now, it's interesting, you may know Philippians as the epistle of joy. It occurs throughout this letter, perhaps more here than in any other single concentrated part of the Bible. And when Paul says he prays with joy, he's emphatic about it. He actually says, with joy I make every one of my prayers. Why does Paul begin speaking of joy in prayer? Well, it's because Paul is joyful to enter into the situation of the Philippian congregation. It's not just that he wants to ask for things for them, but rather he knows they may be troubled by his own circumstances, by the fact that he's in jail, because they, after all, are connected with him. And so he wants to encourage them. He wants to remind them that even though he's in jail, hundreds of miles away, that he has a personal commitment to them and that all the time he is in prayer for them. Because you see, this joy does not come from Paul's circumstances. But it rather comes from the fact that Paul knows his ministry is bearing fruit at Philippi. He knows it's bearing fruit in the advance of the gospel. And so he moves then from gospel unity, centered and grounded in prayer, to speaking of the gospel priority of this Philippian congregation. He says here, in verse 5, he says, I'm joyful in my prayers because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He says, there is one thing that gives me great joy, and it reminds me in my prayers, and it encourages me to prayer, and that's because you are in partnership with me in the gospel. Why does Paul remember to pray for the Philippians day upon day? hour upon hour, continually, he says, all the time. He remembers to pray for them because of their fellowship in the gospel. This word here for partnership means fellowship. It means uh, partnership in the sense of joint venture. It means full participation in the gospel. Some of you perhaps even have been to churches where there is a group called a koinonia group. That's this word here for partnership, fellowship. He is thankful for their koinonia in the gospel. Now, 
We'll look at the partnership aspect in a second, but I want you to think about first the fellowship aspect of the gospel. You see, Paul is invigorated to pray for them. Paul remembers to pray for them. He is comprehensive in praying for them because he knows they are united in fellowship because of the gospel. You see, it's not just that the Philippians live in the same place. It's not just that they gather in the same building. It's not even that they speak the same language. The Philippians are together because of the gospel. They have fellowship one with another because of what God has done in their lives. And this is a fellowship that is not man-made. It is not something that can be manufactured. It is different entirely from a club or an organization. This kind of fellowship cannot be found on the 17th tee at the country club. This kind of fellowship cannot be found while swapping recipes in the neighborhood. This kind of fellowship cannot be found around the large screen TV set with your favorite college team playing. There is a form of fellowship and joy that can be found there, but not this kind of deep-rooted, life-changing fellowship. Because that can only be found in the gospel. It transcends time and place. What do I mean by that? Well, two examples. One first from my own life. I recall when I was a new Christian, I was attending a small Southern Baptist church in Buffalo, New York. Yes, that far up north, a Southern Baptist church. And I got off work early one day and was waiting for Wednesday night prayer meeting and was sitting in the parking lot because I didn't have a key. And one of the other members drove up. And his name was Paul the Trucker. Yes, it was all one phrase. Paul the Trucker. And Paul was about 40 years older than me. He had children that were grown. He was blue-collar to the bone. He uh, was very fond of coming to any event or church event in a button shirt with just the bottom two buttons buttoned. Big-barreled chest of a man. And here was this young neophyte lawyer in his suit and tie because he'd gotten off of work and we're sitting in the parking lot. What do we talk about? What do we do? We have nothing in common. We don't come from the same background. We don't have the same experiences. We don't even have a lot of the same likes. And what we had was fellowship in the gospel. And that united us more than any other thing that we could think of. We see it even here in the text. You see, Paul has this great love for this Philippian congregation. And they love him back. They give gifts of financial assistance to him. They're concerned that he's in jail. They get Paul. Have you ever had anybody get you? Really know what you're thinking? That friend that you start a sentence and they can finish it? You see it in couples that have been married for 15, 20, 25 years. They don't even talk. They just look. They get each other. The Philippians got Paul. And Paul got the Philippians. But I don't want you to forget that the Philippians were recently pagan Greeks. They didn't speak Hebrew. They didn't grow up with the Old Testament. They were not God worshipers. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. A Hebrew of Hebrews could tell you which tribe he descended from was learned in all of the commentaries on the Pentateuch, could probably recite 
huge swaths of the Psalms from heart. They couldn't have been more different. And yet, because of their fellowship in the gospel, they had love, they had unity, they had partnership. Paul gets that. Do you find it difficult to connect with people? Do you, at an event or a party, stand with one shoulder up against the wall? Or perhaps feel you don't have anything to add to the conversation? That nobody gets you. You're lonely. Perhaps in a crowded room you feel all alone. The answer for you is the gospel. Because the gospel unites you to others. It gives you commonality of meaning. It gives you commonality of purpose. It gives you fellowship with others. It makes you part of a family, a child of God. This kind of fellowship is ongoing. It doesn't stop when you move from Taylor High School to a building. It doesn't stop when you plant a church. It doesn't even stop when you move away. It goes, as Paul says, from that very first day when I looked and saw that lady who sold the purple until right now. That's the kind of fellowship we enjoy. It's not just a fellowship in the gospel, though. It is also a partnership in the gospel because this word has that same connotation as well. You see, the congregation at Philippi had gospel priorities and they partnered in the gospel. They were gospel-centered in their ministry. That goes a long way toward explaining why, how they were so united as a congregation, how they prayed for one another, why Paul could pray for them constantly. Because as we draw closer to Jesus Christ, there is a wonderful blessing benefit that comes to us. You see, as we are in disparate places, as we come together and gather around the Lord Jesus Christ, we are drawn closer to each other. We are all in the orbit of Jesus, as it were. We gather together. We are united to one another. We have a commitment to one another because of our commitment to Christ. Our commitment to Jesus, then, requires a commitment to people. You have heard it said before, and it is true, there are no Lone Ranger Christians. If you would be in Jesus Christ, you cannot love Jesus and hate His bride. And you cannot love His bride and not love your brother or your sister. You must be in fellowship with one another. You must have this kind of gospel priority. And this requires unity around the truth as well. You see, Paul preached a gospel. It was a gospel that was so clear and had such explanation to it that here as he speaks to the Philippians, he uses shorthand. You know what that is, don't you? Every one of you here that owns a phone that can text knows about shorthand. There are whole words and phrases that you can say in four letters, right? And when you send it to someone who is not used to that, say like me... I don't do texting. I do email. I look at this conglomeration of letters and I say, what in the world is that? And then someone usually between the ages of 12 and 17 walks up and says, well, she's saying, would you meet him later at the grocery store and go over here and bring the car? 
Huh? It's shorthand. And you see, Paul can say that here about the gospel. He just says the gospel. He doesn't need to say the gospel of faith alone, by grace alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the second person of the Trinity, God triune, three in one, who has revealed Himself in the Scriptures, infallibly, perfectly, sufficiently, that He might draw together a people who might gather and worship Him and praise Him and be sanctified and be glorified. You see, Paul can just say, the gospel. And there are reams that flow off of that. Because he had unity in the truth with this congregation. He didn't have to pretend that they were united. They didn't have to avoid certain subjects. You've probably experienced that as well, haven't you? Where you have a relationship with someone, but you know there are certain places you just don't go. Right? Or maybe you know if you go, you'll be drawn aside for a while. It usually happens when I walk into a Christ church activity wearing a Michigan shirt. I have to explain to folks the importance of the Big Ten. And then there are certain places where we just don't go from there. But that's not the way it is with the Gospel. The Gospel is a truth that is shared in its greatest depth. That we can know it and live it and understand it together. Not separately, but together. You see, this Gospel is simply... The word that came to the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. If you do not know that truth this morning, you must enter into this unity of faith with Paul, with the Philippians, with the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Cast aside all that burdens you, all of your difficulties growing up, all of the hassle with your job, all of the strain in your family and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Begin there. Find unity in the Gospel that you might have fellowship in the Gospel and that you might have then partnership in the Gospel. Because you see, the Philippians took this to the next level. But the dirty secret is it's not really the next level. It's really just the ordinary Christian life. It's the level that you and I must live on every single day. And that is, it was not enough to just simply believe the gospel. The gospel is something that if it is truly believed, must also be spoken, must also be taken out. And so they provided a partnership to Paul in the gospel. The phrase that's used here is actually interesting. The word I've told you, partnership, is also the word we get fellowship from. But when it is used with a certain prepositional phrase, in terms of here where it is partnership in the gospel, the other places where it is used is in financial assistance. You'll see it in Acts 15. And in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 4, where Paul says that they were eager to participate in giving or that they wanted to be involved in assistance to the church at Jerusalem. You see, this kind of partnership is very practical. It's very hands-on. Those of you that like home repairs, this is the kind of partnership that you want to be involved in. This is not sit in a room with your finger on your chin and contemplate what it would mean to be a partner with someone in the Gospel. No, this is a partnership that involves getting your hands dirty. 
and working shoulder to shoulder and sacrificing and giving. You see, they sent funds to Paul. They helped him in the midst of his ministry. But they did something else as well. We see it later on in chapter 2. They sent a friend by the name of Epaphroditus. Because, see, they knew, as those of you that have worked in missions know, that it's not enough to just simply send someone money to have investment in their ministry. You must go to them. You must encourage them. You must see what they see. You must be involved. And that's what they do here with Epaphroditus. Let it never be said that sending short-term missionaries for two weeks or three weeks to a missionary is a waste of time and money. It may not get a home built. It may not convert a stadium. But it will encourage those who are in the ministry. It will lift them up. It will show unity. And it will show and bring blessings from the Lord. This partnership involves a concern for the spread of the gospel in every single way. Because you see, this koinonia has practical implications we've talked about. It is wholehearted, active participation. What do we mean by that? It means that they were out passing out tracts. They were out preaching. They were out writing. They were praying. They were encouraging. They were planning. They were involved in the spread of the gospel. Not simply merely saying, well, you know, we're here. The doors are open. Anybody that comes in can hear the preaching. They did that, of course. But beyond that, they went out. They brought the word of life to a society that needed it. It was wholehearted, active, practical participation. We might think of it even in the sense that we think of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus brought salvation to His people by becoming a baby, by living among them, by eating their food, drinking their drink, sleeping with them, walking with them, talking with them, teaching them, helping them, showing them, loving them. And then He entered into death that He might lift the burden of death and sin from His people. And then, to show that victory had been won, He was raised from the dead. None of our Lord Jesus Christ's life was theoretical. None of it was vague. He entered into the lives of His people, suffered their sufferings, bore their sins, and lived out the triumph before their very eyes so that they would know that He lives, so shall I. This is a practical partnership in the Gospel. Well, Paul wanted to encourage the Philippians that they would be united, that they would show Gospel unity. And then he wanted them to have Gospel priorities to continue on. And then finally, he ends our passage this morning with a call to have gospel assurance. It's a very famous verse. It's probably a verse that you have used or heard as a proof text for the doctrine of salvation. That he who began a good work in you will complete it, will perform it at the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it certainly is that. It's a good proof text. But a proof text is usually something that is taken out of context. 
So you miss some of its meaning. And so here, when Paul says this, it is not just about the thought of individual assurance of salvation. It's about assurance of salvation within the context of God's people and the work of the gospel. You see, knowing that God began a good work in us and will perform it reminds us that salvation really is a transfer from death to life. It really is. It's not just something we talk about or think about. The transition from death to life in the one who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ is as real and as practical and as life-changing as when our Lord Jesus shed the grave clothes and rose from the dead. That's how real it is. And a changed life must lead then to a changed lifestyle. It is not that we do good works that God might accept us, but we see that we are alive and we do the things that one does when one is alive. You don't say that you're alive if you don't breathe, or if you don't eat, or if you don't walk or talk. That's what dead people do. They lay motionless and do nothing and don't breathe and their hearts don't beat. When you are alive, you take on the characteristics of being alive. And that is what is happening here in the Philippian church. They are alive. God has begun a work in them. And He will perform it. He will take them through this entire journey. And so that promise is for you as well. Are you alive in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? Do you know Him by faith? Do you profess that you are freed from the chains of death and hell, and you will live forever with the one who is the first fruits of the resurrection. Then if so, I ask you, not by accusation, but by encouragement, do you read your Bible? Because spiritually alive people read their Bible. Do you pray? Because those who are spiritually alive pray. They speak with the Lord who has raised them from the dead. Do you have fellowship with other believers? Because those who are alive in Christ desire to have that kind of partnership, that kind of fellowship, one with another. Because you see, it is actually possible to profess spiritual realities without experiencing them. I can talk all day long about how I played middle linebacker for the Cleveland Browns. But that doesn't make it so. You see, the same is true for you. You must profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but you must live that faith out. Because you see, the blessing there is, instead of being accused as those who seek to work their way into God's good graces, always wondering if they've done enough, always wondering if they've just messed up, just like Martin Luther, who said if everyone could be could get to heaven by monkery, it was me. He prayed all day. He fasted all day. He climbed stairs on his knees. He did vigils. He did pilgrimages. And all it did was accuse his conscience. But to the one who is united to Christ by faith, those evidences of faith are not accusing, they are encouraging. Because you see, when the devil sows doubts in your heart, you say to yourself, but wait a minute. 
I actually desire to pray. Dead people don't do that. The Word tells me that that's what Christians do. I desire to read my Bible. I desire to tell others about the Gospel. I desire to serve others. I want to help the widows and the orphans. And you see, that is an encouragement to us. God has given to us those good works as evidences of our faith that we might have assurance. And this is not just true of individuals. This is true of a church as well. If we would be a live, living beacon of the gospel here in Katy, we cannot simply talk about it. We must know what we believe. And we must act that out. We must be teaching the scriptures. We must be praying for others. We must be in fellowship with one another. We must be serving one another. This is how we gain assurance that God is at work, that He has begun our work. You see, this phrase here, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, is well known in Philippians 1.6. But it's actually used in only one other place of the Bible. These same two verbs, begin and complete. It's in Galatians 3.3, another famous verse. You remember when Paul says, Do you now, having begun in the Spirit, think that you will bring it to completion or perfection through the flesh? You see, Paul is saying here to the Philippians and to you and to me that if we would be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. If we would know that God has begun a good work in us, we must trust God to continue and complete that work. We don't begin in Jesus and roll along in Fred or John or Harry or Bill. We must begin in Christ and we must have grace to continue in Christ. God must be not only at the beginning of the work, He must be in the work right now. Because you see, God is at work. His work continues in this congregation at Philippi. God never gives up. Have you thought about that? Have you encouraged yourself with that? That God never gives up. I give up. I'm sure you give up. My favorite way to give up is if I've sat down to play a game and it becomes patently obvious that there's no possible way I'm going to win. I say, well, I give up. Right? We even have that in, in some sports leagues. It's a mercy rule. Right? Stop. But you see, God never gives up. When He makes a soul, a person, a Christian, alive in Christ, He is always in control. He never lets go. He is always in charge. We saw this over and over and over again in the book of Kings. No matter how often the people of Israel, the kingdom of Judah, strayed from the Lord, no matter how often He had to chastise them and punish them, He never gave up. He said, but there will never be one who will lack on the throne of David. Why? Because they were so good? Because they were so big? Because they were so smart? No. Because God was the one in control. He was sovereign. And the Philippians understood this. They understood that assurance was not just for the beginning, not just for the ending, but for every day. 
every single day, the work of God was manifest in their lives. God began this good work in them. God continued this work in them. And God brought it to completion. This word for complete is, as I've said to you, it's a little bit of a different word. It's only really used in Galatians 3.3. The normal word for complete or finish is used uh, in other places. Perhaps the most famous usage of that word is the one that most of us can even say in the Greek, and that is tetelestai, which is it is finished, what Christ said on the cross. But this word for complete actually has a bit of a different connotation. It is... How might I put this in illustration? It is stellar work. It is finishing touches. It is the work that is mostly done. It is the accents. It is what makes it look good. It is what brings it to completion. You see, God's work here is already done in the main. When the Lord has saved you, He has saved you. It is not in doubt but He's not finished with you yet. He's putting finishing touches on you day by day that you might be made meet for heaven, that you might be ready for glory. And you see, if we think about it that way, we take great heart in our perseverance because God has already done what He will do. He's still at work in our lives and sometimes, if we're honest, that's awfully painful as He cleans up our language, cleans up our habits, cleans up our relationships. It can be very painful. But the bulk of the work is done. There's no going back from here. God is taking this to completion. He's putting on the finishing touches. The outcome is completely guaranteed. There will be no last-minute rush. God will not say, well, you know, one air conditioning unit doesn't work real well. Ah, one will be good enough. It'll cool it down. No, not for God. Everything will be perfect. Everything will be right. Everything will be brought to completion. This is something that can never be lost, never be forfeited. Salvation can no more be forfeited than the Father could break His word to His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that He would be glorified. And if we think about it, that is why the resurrection is so important. Because in the resurrection, God has declared not only to Jesus, not only to the world, but to you and to me, that there can be no going back. That it has been accomplished. That the victory has been won already. Everything else is just the epilogue. This is the work of God in His people. And it's no surprise here that Paul ends this famous verse by saying that God will complete this work at the day of Christ. Take a lesson here from Paul's vision. As you leave this place this morning, as you go to work tomorrow, as you go on vacation this summer, have the vision that Paul has of assurance. You see, Paul's focus is not on the immediate and it's not even on his death. It is on the consummation of all things at the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
That is what Easter should remind you of. That all things are coming together for the day when our Lord will return and everything will be consummated and all wrongs will be righted and all tears will be wiped away and we will have that fellowship, koinonia, partnership with the living God forever. Does that get you excited? Does that get you ready to go out and conquer the world? I pray that it does. That's God's plan for His church. That they would be united. That they would have the gospel as their priority. And that they would be assured in the work that God has done. And that will turn a world upside down. Let us pray.